uh, a message from the Lord. I've been working on it for weeks now, and and uh, today's the day. So I want to start out with the, we're in this series of the return of Jesus, and we'll get to that in in a few minutes. But I want to start out with this question. And I know if you have walked with God for three days, you have probably asked this question: God, what are you doing? All right. Have you been in a situation where you question God's sanity? Why are you letting this happen? I'm in pain and you're not stopping it. That evil person is succeeding and I am not. Why is that happening? God, what are you thinking? Are you there? Do you hear my prayers? What is going on? Anybody been there? Yeah, everybody's hand is up. I know. Do you care? Why do you let this happen? I'm terribly hurt and you're not stopping it. I want justice. Sure looks like the uh, sinners are succeeding and I'm not. Kind of questions that we come up with. And I want you to know that the Bible is full of those kinds of questions. You are not alone when you come to wondering if God really cares. Or can God do anything about my situation? Can he heal me? Can he stop that person from lying about me? Can he stop this family falling apart? Or if he didn't, why didn't he? We're all in the same boat. All the way back to very godly, righteous men of Scripture, prophets, men who walked with God, and they asked the same questions. I want to show you just a few of them from Scripture. From Malachi 3, prophet Malachi says, it is useless to serve God. How's that for the Bible verse? The first Bible verse of the sermon. It is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept their, His word and that we have walked humbly before the Lord of hosts? For the bl- proud are blessed and those who do wickedness are promoted. They defy God and go free. Ouch. Psalm 82, David says, God, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Job says the same thing about God. Why do we, the righteous, not see God move? There are people getting by with murder, stealing and lying and cheating. They rip off the poor and exploit the unfortunate. They threaten the weak so that they fear for their lives. The poor, like stray dogs and cats, scavenge for food in back alleys. They sort through the garbage of the rich, and they eke out survival on handouts. They shiver through cold nights on the street. They have no place to lay their heads. Nursing mothers have their babies snatched from them. The infants of the poor are cut out and sold. The hard workers go hungry. No matter how back-breaking their labor, they can never make ends meet. When the sun goes down, the murderer gets up and kills the poor and robs the defenseless. Sexual predators can't wait for nightfall, thinking no one can see us now. Burglars do their work at night, but keep well out of sight through the day. All this, and God does nothing. Amen. Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon saw the same thing. I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun, the tears of the oppressed, Their oppressors have political power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon says, I've seen a just man who suffers in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who lives well in his wickedness. Can you believe that wasn't written in 2015? Ecclesiastes 8.14, there is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are good men who have bad lives and there are wicked men who have good lives. This is a useless waste. Sound familiar? Ecclesiastes 10, there is an evil that I have seen. Foolishness is greatly respected by the governors while the wise sit in a lowly place. I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground like servants. Wow, that was all the way back 5,000 years ago? Sounds like Washington, D.C. and Salem to me. 
Psalm 73, Asaph says this, I had almost stopped believing. I had almost lost my faith because I was jealous of proud people. I saw wicked people doing well. They're not suffering. They're healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like the rest of us. They don't have problems like other people. They wear pride like a necklace and they put on violence as their clothing. They are looking for profits and they do not control their selfish desires. They look down on others and speak evil. and Proudly they speak of hurting others. They brag to the sky. They think that they own the earth so people turn to them and give them whatever they want. They say, how can God know? What does God most high know? These people are wicked, always at ease and getting richer. So why have I kept my heart pure? Why have I kept my hands from doing wrong? I have suffered all day long. I have humbled my heart every morning. I tried to understand this, but it was too hard for me to see until I went to the temple of God. Then I understood what will happen to them. You have put them in danger. You have caused them to be destroyed. They are destroyed in a moment. They are swept away by terrors. It will be like waking from a dream. Lord, when you rise up, they will disappear. When my heart was sad and I was angry, I was senseless and stupid. But I am always with you. You have held my hand. You guide me with your word. And later you will receive me into glory. I have no one in heaven but you. I want nothing on earth besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength. He is mine forever. Those who are far from God will die. You destroy those who are unfaithful, but I am close to God and that is good. The Lord God is my protection. I will tell all that you have done. I have no one in heaven but you. I want nothing on earth but you. My heart and flesh may fail, but God is my strength. Asaph said, I almost gave up. I almost quit because it sure does look like the evil are doing really well. And I'm trying to obey God and do it His way. And my life stinks. But then I realized they're not getting away with anything. God sees it all. So we're talking about the return of Jesus and my question this morning is what is Jesus going to do about this? Because those verses are totally legitimate. The prayers of our hearts are totally legitimate. God, are you there? Is my prayer getting past the ceiling? Is my obedience matter at all? Does their disobedience matter at all? What will Jesus do with child molesters and lawless judges and ISIS terrorists and raging abusive husbands and insubmissive wives and disobedient children and drug dealers and pimps and slave traders and cougars and coyotes and Caitlyn Jenners and rapists and liars and murderers and cop killers and corrupt cops and rioters and abortionists and dads who leave their kids and women that make them want to leave family splitters and church splitters and adulterers and baby body part sellers and meth cooks and porn watchers and suicide bombers and school shooters and church shooters and military recruiting office shooters and cheating businessmen and scheming politicians and Hollywood A-listers and the obscenely rich and the thieving poor and hypocrite preachers and fake Christians who celebrate sin. Are all these people getting away with it? Or is he going to do something about it? Well, we're in this series of the gospel of the return of Jesus. We've spent seven months talking about what has to happen before Jesus returns between now and then. And then we've spent uh, the last few of that, last, of that seven about what will happen with us, his people, on the day that Jesus returns. We talked about our body transformation. We talked about the judgment seat of Christ for our eternal reward. We talked about the wedding feast of the Lamb and the new name that we get. And today we come to the part in Scripture in Revelation 19, what happens on the earth to the people of the world who have specifically rebelled against Jesus and the Word of God, what happens there? 
Is He going to do anything about it? Is it going to matter at all that we obeyed? Is it going to matter at all that they didn't? Let's see what He says. Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one else knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a new name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Go Jesus. Here's Jesus. John sees him after 16 chapters in Revelation of calamity and heavenly worship and disaster on the earth and sin and rebellion. And finally, in chapter 19, Jesus returns. And John sees him on a white horse with his crown and his sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. He's not biting on a sword. It's, it's the word of God, the two-edged sword. And I'm sure you've heard of the Battle of Armageddon this morning. I'm not going to talk about this as a battle, but I know you, you've heard that before. There's this battle called Armageddon because it happens in a plain of Megiddo, which is outside of Jerusalem. But we, Jesus' people, have already been taken up to meet him. We are married as his bride. We're, we and the angels are returning with him. The people on the earth that are left are the people who rejected Jesus. They actually mount a military resistance to his coming. How futile could it get? But that's what they try. And this is the description of that. There's actually one final resistance. There's actually a war. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. But it is so pathetically one-sided. <laughs> it's not even a chance that Jesus puts out, breaks half a sweat to win this battle. But this battle is compared to, it says that he strikes the nations with the sword of his mouth and he rules them with a rod of iron. And it says here at the bottom, it says he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. A winepress those of you who are older will remember an I Love Lucy about a wine press. But a wine press is a gigantic barrel that they would fill with grapes and then numerous, multiple people, it was so big, multiple people could get inside and they would stomp the grapes. And it would break up the grapes and let the juice out. Then they would collect the juice and strain it and clean it and put it in bottles to ferment into wine. But this battle at Jesus' return is compared to Jesus fighting these people who resist him, who don't want him to return and set up the kingdom of heaven. It's compared to him stomping a wine press and making wine out of them. It's so completely one-sided that in Revelation 14, John saw something else about the wine press of heaven. It says, The angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles flowing 200 miles. Jesus, when he returns with us and his angels, there will be people waiting for him to try to kill him. It will be such a pathetically one-sided battle. He will crush them so completely. There will be a river of blood five to six feet deep, 200 miles long. From the people that Jesus kills. They're not getting away with anything. That's the wine press of the wrath of God. Continuing on in Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun... And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said that the birds of heaven are demons. This angel calls to all the demons. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may feast on the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, and by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus. Savior of the world, lover of our souls, gentle, prince of peace, comes and does that. He smashes his enemies so completely there is a river of blood 200 miles long and he feeds their flesh to the demons. I don't know where the reference is right off the top of my head, but the Bible says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. The prince of peace will crush him. And there will be total vindication and justice and satisfaction for God and for Jesus and for us. For all the evil that was done on the earth, every sin that was done to you, every sin that was done to your loved ones, to the small and defenseless. Jesus says if you hurt a child, it would be better if you tie a rock to your neck and throw yourself in the ocean compared to what I'm going to do to you. Whatever has been done to the politically unpowerful, to the victims of war and slavery and rape and betrayal and abandonment, to those who have been lied about, attacked, robbed, and used, every single situation, every act, every relationship, every deed, every moment of every day since time began will be set right in the vengeance and justice of Jesus. Go, Jesus. Yes. Jesus is returning in passionate desire and furious love for his girl and anybody who has wronged her in any way will have hell to pay. Come on. Jesus is coming for his girl and anybody who has wronged her is going to have hell to pay. Ephesians 5 says, No fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Do not be partakers with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Colossians 3, 5 says the same thing. Put to death your earthly parts, fornication, unclean sex, lust, evil desire, adultery, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. There's some good news. All of us were one of those things, or maybe more, but he got us saved out, which means that anybody who is still living in sin can be saved out before that day comes. There is good news. So I know somebody out there is thinking, Mitch, Jesus killing people? Are you seriously saying that? No, I'm not saying it. The Bible is. But we're supposed to forgive everybody. God loves everybody. Well, let's talk about that. A lot of you have heard a lot of lies about that. Traditions of men instead of the Word of God. Rich Mullins would say that when he was a teenager, he suffered terrible depression, was suicidal, and people in his church when he was a teenager, would tell him, cheer up, God loves you. Some little cliche, pat on the back, God loves you kind of thing. And he would think, big deal, God loves everybody. Rich Mullins would say, when people would tell him, God loves you, his automatic thought as a teenage boy was, big deal. God loves everybody, that doesn't make me special. Is he right? Is there any point to being a child of God? Does your life matter to God? Is your case a big deal to Him? Or do you just have to let it all go because He loves everybody? Does God love the one who sinned against you the same as He loves you? Well, let me point out the truth here with a little parable for you. That as a husband and dad, it is my responsibility to protect these people right here. And 
if somebody tries to do them harm, I will stop that person all the way to killing that person if I need to. So let's use the example of some intruder comes into our home in the, in the night. Exodus 22.2 says, if you kill a burglar in the night, it's not murder. If you kill him during the day, you could have not done that. But it's not murder if it's in the night. God's law is nothing if not sensible. So it is my responsibility, it is my love for them that produces wrath. Even deadly force on someone who would try to hurt them. If I don't do that, if I don't have that, I'm not a man. I'm a coward. I said, I'm not a man. I'm a coward. It is my job. It is my duty as a husband and a dad to do that. Sarah calls it, Sarah's got it too. She calls it her mother bear. You know, I don't have the mother part. But they are protected and loved by my anger and wrath and force and strength. Do you hear me? A lot of Christians get really nervous. You start talking about the wrath of God. Believe me, we want Him to have wrath because we are behind that. And it is our protection. His anger, His judgment, His vengeance is our shield. It is our justice. God forbid it would ever happen. But let's imagine that I come home to a rapist on top of Sarah. If I come her into the bedroom and I say, oh, now stop it, you two. I love you both equally and let's work this out. <laughs> that is sick. Because I love her and I don't love him. And I will do anything to stop that from happening. God is your father. And he does not love the children of Satan the same as he loves you. Jesus does not love the harlot of, Bar of Babylon the same as he loves his bride. There is a huge benefit to being his child. Amen. He is our protector and our hero, our guardian and our vindicator. He is the one who brings us justice in our case. David, all through Psalms, prays, God, defend me against my enemies. Judge me according to my righteousness. And God absolutely picks sides. Not because we are good or any self-righteousness, but because we have said yes to Jesus and come into His family. We're His children. If you think God loves everybody the same, then why would you ever tell anybody they need to get saved? They're already loved as much as they could be loved. It's not true. You come into Jesus and you receive all the benefits of Father God and King Jesus. The love that God has for those outside of Jesus is this. Jesus said that he gives them rain on the just and the unjust. He says he feeds them like he feeds the birds, meaning he gives them the necessities of life. He offers them salvation in Jesus. He does not want them to die and go to hell. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He would much rather show them mercy than judgment. But, Otherwise, if somebody continues to refuse Jesus, they are described in the Bible as God's enemies. James says he opposes them. Psalm says he is angry with them every day. 1 Thessalonians says he will torment them for what they do wrong to us. And Psalm says he will destroy them. Jesus says three times in three different parables, that the people who refuse to obey God are trash who will be thrown away and burned for eternity. There is a huge benefit to being the son of God, the daughter of God. We who are in Christ are completely free from all of that and anyone else is welcome and emphatically invited. Please, please come into Jesus. Come on now. Anyone is invited. 
to come into Jesus and receive the adoption as the sons of God, his protection instead of his wrath. Whether you know it or not, you are very glad that Jesus is returning in vengeance. Because we cannot have faith to forgive unforgivable things unless we trusted that Jesus would set it right later. Hello? I said we cannot forgive unforgivable things unless we trust that Jesus will make it right later. I want to quote to you from Miroslav Volf. He is a, uh, he's from Yugoslavia, which 20 years ago had the genocidal civil war between Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia, Herzegovina. He's from that area. He's a Christian man. He's now a professor at Yale. He's a genius. He's being called the new C.S. Lewis. But he's in America now, but he lived through the genocidal civil war. His family was all killed. His village burned. This is what he says about Americans who believe that God loves everybody and won't judge sinners. He says, if you think that believing in a God of vengeance makes you violent, it is clear you have lived a very comfortable life. If when you are hurt, your children and loved ones are hurt, beaten, raped, when your village is plundered and burned, there is only one thing that will keep you from being sucked into that cycle of violence. And that is only if you believe there is a God himself who knows what people deserve. God will judge, so I don't have to. Continuing the quote, If you think that an idea of a judging God leads to violence, not at all. Violence thrives today precisely because of the belief that God refuses to wield the sword. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine judgment will not be popular in the United States. It takes the quiet of an American suburb to make up the theory that human nonviolence can result from a belief in an all-loving God that refuses to judge. If God is not angry at injustice and doesn't make a final end to violence, then God is not worthy of worship. Amen. In Hebrews 10, God says, I own vengeance. Hebrews 10.30 says, We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is always, always a sin for us to take revenge. It is never a sin for God to do so. God owns vengeance and judgment. We do not. Because you can only judge those who you died for. Because he gave absolutely everything possible for those sinners that then reject him, it is legal for God to judge them, to condemn them. To destroy them because he's done absolutely everything possible for them to not be destroyed and they turned away you and I have not died for our enemies Jesus did he has every right to say that they're condemned or they're not we do not but vengeance is not a sin or evil in and of itself for God Second Thessalonians says this we boast about your patience and faith and your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. It is a, pay attention to this sentence. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It is right for God to bring vengeance on those who persecute us, his people. He will do it. And he will give us rest with the Lord Jesus when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day. God knows everything. He knows the motivations of everybody's heart. He knows everything perfectly. He knows who is guilty and who is not. He is the only one that may judge. But when he does, it's perfect. Psalm 35, David says, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Stand up for my help. Draw out your spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to my, your righteousness and let them not rejoice over me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. 
Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. I want to tell you four stories, three of which I did not get to tell first service because of time. But there's a woman in our church who just a couple weeks ago told me this story of a person who had treated her terrible for years. And she only returned love and graciousness and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for this person's salvation. And it never happened. He continued to reject God and he died. And she said, when he died, I felt happy. I could not wipe the smile off my face and I felt terrible about that. And I said, I don't think you need to feel terrible at all. You did exactly what God said and God took judgment and you should be happy when God does something because whatever he does is good and right. Amen. She never prayed for his death, but God took action and vindicated her. Sarah has a relative generations back, nobody that's anywhere even close to alive now, but there was a, a, a woman in the a wife in, when the family was being treated terrible by her husband and subjected to pretty darn terrible abuse. And one night she just had had enough of the names he called her and the words that he said, and she prayed. She said, Lord, don't please don't ever let him talk to me that way again. And in the night he had a massive stroke and he never spoke again in his life. God vindicates his people. David, all through Psalms, prays, God, fight for my enemies. David would not fight against them for his own sake. So God, I submit myself to your justice, but please take action in my case. I've told you this story before, but there was a John Bevere tells a story of a pastor in a church in a region where there was lots of Mexican farm workers. And he wanted to do evangelism outreach to the, to the migrant Mexican farm workers. And there was seven elders in the church. And the elders said, no, we don't want those kind of people in our church. And the pastor was livid. Like, how dare you say that? And the seven elders were unanimous. No, we have a certain demographic and kind of person in our church, and we do not want migrant farm workers in our church. It got bad enough that within a few weeks the pastor resigned. Within six months or a year, all seven elders were dead. Every single one of them. And the pastor went on to be very, very successful. God fights for his people. The youth pastor at Life Church in Walla Walla told a story to the G3 group. So if you were high, if you were there, you heard this story before. But his dad was an elder in a church where the pastor was having an affair, and the elders knew about it and they were hiding it for him. Pastor is having an affair with a woman in the church. His elders know about it and they're hiding it from him. And dad finds out, and at an elders meeting, he says, "This is absolutely not going to happen. I'm going to tell the church." And two of the elders said, if you tell the church, we will kill you. He said, uh, if, if the, he told the pastor, if you get on stage on Sunday, I will tell the church. Sunday came, the pastor gets up to start his sermon, and Cole's dad goes up on stage and said, this is absolutely not going to happen. You need to know that the pastor, this pastor, this man is having an affair. He is a fraud, and he's hiding it. Two of the elders pull out pistols. Right front row, pull out pistols, right in the church meeting. Dad pulls his coat back. He's got one on either hip. And he says, I only brought these in case you go for my wife. If you're going to kill me, you're going to kill me, but you're not going to touch her. He said, I don't care if I die. These people are going to know that you are absolute frauds. And this is not okay. Well, nobody was shot. And his family walks out of the church and never returns again. Within a year, Two of the elders are struck by lightning and the pastor died in a car wreck. You thought it was a joke about God with his lightning bolts. It happened. I said it happened. God fights for his people. He doesn't put up with any crap or hypocrisy or hidden sin. And when the righteous are suffering, God does something about it. Amen. When David says, Lord, take out my enemies, that's, a lot of preachers want to say, well, that was David being emotional and he shouldn't pray revenge prayers. Psalms is full of it. I printed out 25 pages 
of Bible verses about God save me from my enemies. Take them out. Deliver me. I can't preach a sermon 25 pages long. I can't even read you half of the verses I found about God being on our side. That He is a God of justice. And where you have been wronged, He will make it right. Amen. Back to the Psalms. Psalm 7. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Psalm 103, the Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 59, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. Let them know that God rules to the ends of the earth. Psalm 10, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. But you have seen, for you have observed trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you have completely destroyed him. Go, Jesus. Psalm 11, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance upholds, beholds the upright. Psalm 74. Remember this, that the Lord has reproached The enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. O do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor servant forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies. The chaos of those who rise up against you increases continually. People want to say, well, David was just emotional and he's praying out his anger to God. And Well, in the New Testament, uh, 2 Timothy, Paul writes about the silversmith that he says he has done me much harm. May God repay him according to his deeds. And he tells the church, everyone stay away from him and he's an evil man. Paul prays, God Don't ever forget what he did to me and do the same thing to him. Psalm 94. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked triumph? They speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They slay the wicked and the alien. They murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? For the Lord will not forget his people. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have died. Your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comfort delights my soul. Shall a sinful government which legislates evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together. Is that not amazing? This is 3,000 years old psalm. Is that not amazing? Shall a sinful government which legislates evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous. They condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. As I read through these verses, I began to see some of them that talked not only about just the fact that Jesus treads the winepress of the the wrath of God, just that God takes vengeance and establishes justice on our behalf, but that he's happy about it. And that we are to rejoice in his justice. Proverbs 11.10 says, When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Psalm 58 says, The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. 
Psalm 149 says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations, to punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. That is a worship psalm describing the battle at Jesus' return. When it says he comes with his armies dressed in white, that's us. And what will we be doing? We will be singing his praises while we fight with Jesus. I know that some of you are like, this is gross, Mitch. This is terrible. I don't want to be rejoice about God's wrath. Well, I say if Jesus is your king, you better fight with him when he comes to fight, and you better cheer when he wins. Isaiah 35 says, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That's the gospel. Good news, people who are scared. Good news, people who are fearful. Good news, people who are helpless. God is coming, and he's coming on your side, and he will set it all right. Back to Malachi 3, the very first scripture I showed you. Let me give you a little context what God answers against that charge. Malachi, speaking, prophesying in the voice of God, says, God says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. But you say, what have we spoken against you, God? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his word and that we have walked humbly before the Lord of hosts? The proud are blessed and those who do wickedness are promoted. They even defy God and go free. God says, don't say that about me. You say, it's useless to serve God because we're trying to be righteous and our lives are hard. And the people who go about their own wickedness, God doesn't punish them. This is God's answer. Continuing the chapter, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened. And heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him. Those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels, I will spare them, as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God says, I'm watching, I'm listening. When those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, that's what we're doing right now. God says, I'm listening. I know your details. I know that you fear me, and I know what you are enduring. Trust me, there is a day coming. I will make it all right. And on that day, I will spare you, and I will make you my jewels, and I will bring you justice. Psalm 140 says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. We will, that verse says we will thank God as he pleads the cause of the afflicted and brings justice to the poor. Isaiah says we will praise God as he judges the world. We will celebrate his perfection. We will celebrate his holiness. We will celebrate that he will completely vindicate himself and us we celebrate the perfect justice is completed we rejoice that he is our protector and our hero that he knows every detail every injustice every lie every sin against us and he will fully satisfy the needs and the damages and the pains of every single heart and situation i know that some of you are still saying okay mitch i can see how god would be angry at sex traffickers and isis terrorists and abortionists and I even understand that if they don't repent, they'll be condemned. But what about salvation and forgiveness and love in all of this? Well, the day we're talking about now, the return of Jesus, it's too late. By the time Jesus comes to tread out their blood and feed their flesh to the demons, there's been 2,000 years of opportunities to repent. There's been 16 chapters of calamities and warnings and signs and heavenly worship, and the gospel. So if you're concerned about love, love is this. Do whatever it takes to save anyone from destruction. That is love. 
Say whatever you have to say. Piss off whoever you have to make mad. Do whatever you need to do. Pay whatever cost. Lose whatever friends you have to lose. Let them know the truth. Now is the time to choose Jesus and be saved from the wrath that's coming. 1 Thessalonians 1 says, You turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus will deliver anyone from the wrath to come if they will just listen and come to Him. And our message is, wrath is coming. Get out of the way. Come to Jesus now before He comes to you. When our kids were at camp in KC, Three weeks ago, Erin told me that the thing that she'll remember the most that made the biggest impression on her was that the youth pastor there had a a vision of a a girl on a beach building a sandcastle and everyone else on the beach was running away from a tsunami that was coming in. But nobody bothered to tell her or save her. And the tidal wave came in and swept her away and she was gone. And the message from the Lord was, Tell everybody that I'm not just coming to gather my people. I'm coming in vengeance and destruction also, and I don't want anybody swept away in that. Tell them now. Because today, there is still time to repent. Come to Jesus today, right now. Be saved from the vengeance of God. There is complete forgiveness, complete restoration with God in Christ Jesus. When you turn from your sin and you make Jesus your Lord and Savior... God becomes your father and his heart is completely at peace with you. All of his vengeance toward your sin was taken out on Jesus 2,000 years ago. If you choose him today, you can have peace with God. But if you say no to Jesus, there is no other payment for your sin except your own eternal destruction. Come today. Don't wait. Because we only have two choices, the cross or hell. It said we only have two choices, the cross or hell, either complete forgiveness or complete destruction, and both are total justice. It said both of them are total justice. Because the demands of God's holiness against Mitch's sin and Will's sin and Chandler's sin were paid for by Jesus, and that is more than enough justice for God. God's heart is completely satisfied. He has nothing against Mitch or Mike or Maury. It's total justice. The demands that we may have against fellow Christians were paid for by Jesus. You may have even been hurt by somebody in church or in your family or who's a Christian or whatever. If we want to be forgiven, we better forgive. That is a command and a warning. There is more than enough justice in the blood of Jesus to satisfy whatever pains we may have at the hands of a fellow Christian. The demands that God has against unrepentant, rebellious sinners, they'll be paid for with their own blood as Jesus crushes them and feeds them into hell. The demands that you have against your abuser, your rapist, your cheater, the one who lied about you, your perpetrator, your enemy, whatever your case may be, those demands will be completely satisfied and totally forgotten, actually, as you see how terrible the vengeance of God is and how horrible hell is. And you will, from your safe and loving place at Jesus' side, you will honestly and humbly wish that your enemy and abuser had received the mercy of God like you did. I said, when you see what Jesus does to that other person on your behalf, you will forget all charges. And you will wish they had repented and turned to Jesus. And any charges you may have against God Why did you stand by? Why did you not heal me? Why did you have me go through that? Why did you let that happen? They'll all be completely satisfied. You will see his wrath and his justice. And we will be very happy just to be alive in his mercy that we don't deserve.
your desire for justice will be more than satisfied. That God is right and fair and perfectly good. My dad had a vision two years ago where he was in the heavenly courtroom and God was on his throne at the judge's bench. My dad was in the plaintiff's uh, prosecutor's stand and a man who robbed him 25 years ago, 30 years ago, was at the defendant's seat. His name was Harvey. And my dad raged to God against Harvey a fellow Christian man that cheated him out of a lot of money years ago, raged against God for a long time in this vision that he had. He was driving his pickup, but the entire world just melted away, and he was in the heavenly courtroom. And he said, I screamed and yelled and pointed my finger and accused him, and everything I said was exactly true. It was all factual. And I said, God, when are you going to make him pay? I've had to pay for 25 years. When are you going to make him pay? And he said, when I was done listing all of the wrongs that Harvey had done, Jesus came in the back door of the courtroom and he went and he stood by Harvey. And my dad said, all of the rage melted out of me as I realized I had been the worst fool ever. Because one day, my dad said, one day I will be the one in the defendant's seat. And if Jesus doesn't walk in and stand by me, I am damned. All of the anger, the unforgiveness, the bitterness of 30 years just drained out of my dad. He got saved. Praise the Lord. Trust the Lord that whatever has been done to you, however you have been wronged or broken or molested or used or lied about, God knows. And there will be perfect justice for every person that belongs to Him. That justice might be that your enemy gets saved. And you better tell them that. And if he or she repents, you better be happy. But if they don't, you can rest without any bitterness or vendetta in your heart knowing Jesus will make it all right someday. In the meantime, I walk in peace and love and forgiveness. Knowing he's got it all wrapped up from the beginning to the end. And I will be satisfied when he's done. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, come. Your spirit and your bride say, come. Come.